I'm so glad to be with you this morning on this last message on generosity. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Matthew chapter 6 today. One of those most amazing chapters in the whole Bible where Jesus talks to his disciples in a very intimate way about life, about things to come. And in the middle of that, he talks about generosity. This generosity series, we, we did last year a generosity series, the year before that as well. So in July, we often come back and say, what does it mean to live a life of generosity? What does it mean to let our, our Lord guide us in our finances and our giving and, and all those things that have to do with that? And so we're looking at that this week. Last week, we talked about the how of giving. The week before that, Russell Gregory came and brought a message about the who of giving. We give to the Father, we give to the Lord. Last week, we talked about tithes and offerings. And I always love that message uh, illustration where we have all the fruit up on the stage. That was last week. And I know some of you take notes in your Bible. And if I ever repeat a passage, you come back and say, you preached this on this date. And, uh, and somebody said that to me. You've done this fruit thing now three times. That's the third fruity message you brought to us. And I want you to know that that fruit message is one of my favorite messages to bring. And if I bring it every year, then we're going to have fruit every year, man. And uh, it's a fruitful message in people's lives as well. We actually had some people call and say, you know, for the first time, I understand what it means, what God wants from me, what God wants for me. Uh, send me some envelopes so I can begin giving or help me get online and give because I want to be in God's economy. And that's an important part of your spiritual life. But today we want to talk about something else. We want to talk about the amazing benefit of generosity, the amazing benefit of generosity. A long passage, but man, is it packed. Let's stand together as we read beginning in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. Now, if you can, imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus as he walks through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and now this passage about treasure, about the things we possess and then later on about what we worry about. And Jesus is giving some incredible instruction. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the punchline of those few words right there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he says something else. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And now here's the punchline for that. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here it is. You cannot serve God and wealth or God and material possessions. And then he launches into a third thing about anxiety. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on as life, not more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you, 
that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what shall we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all those things. But your heavenly Father knows you need these things. And here's the punchline for that section. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then in summary, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself, and all of us believe this, each day has enough trouble on its own. Can I get an amen for that? Each day has enough trouble for its own. Father, today I ask you in Jesus' name to speak to us today about tomorrow. Today about the present as well as the inside worry, anxiety that we face. Father, I pray that you would use this text the way you intended it to be used in your disciples' lives. And we are your disciples today as we look eagerly for that instruction in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Keep your text open because as we walk through this today, I want to talk to you again about what God wants for us and what God wants from us. Dave Ramsey the financial expert made this statement about giving. Sometimes people hear the idea of giving and it becomes a painful subject to them because they think it's hard to give. And Dave Ramsey said this, giving teaches us how to keep God first in our lives and how to live unselfishly. Unselfish people make better spouses, friends, relatives, employees, and employers. And they usually have better finances. God is trying to teach us how to prosper over time with our lives. Well, that's a true statement. Sometimes when God gives us commands, we don't understand that all God's commands are for us and for our benefits. God never gives us a command that's bad for us. He never says anything to us or leads us to do anything that's harmful to us. All his commands are for us and not just from us. But it's hard for us to believe that sometimes, isn't it? I remember taking one of our children to the hospital with my wife one time and and uh, she had to have a spinal tap. And that's, of course, horrible words, horrible news for a little baby to have to go through something like that, where a needle is actually inserted into the spine and fluid is taken out of it. And I can remember our little girl uh, looking at my wife and I as that needle came out and as she was fixed in place for that to take place, she looked at us with that horror and that shock and that worry that said, how could you, my parents, actually do this to me? Now, those are tough times as a parent. Now, I would not have allowed that doctor or nurse to have that needle to do that procedure unless it was for her good. And yet, at the moment, it seemed intimidating, it seemed worrisome, it seemed anxious. And so that little girl, our daughter, who couldn't really say much at the time, looked at us and you could read her face implicitly. How could you do this to me? Sometimes when God leads us to do something, when he calls us to do something, we look at God with an incredulous look on our face, say, why would you ask me to do that? How can that be good for me? How can that be good for us? How can that be good for anybody? I'm sure the disciples were wondering some of those things as Jesus began to talk to them about giving and about their finances and about the treasure. They seem very valuable to them on earth. But what Jesus is really doing is Jesus is setting them up for success, not failure. 
Now, when you read this text, Jesus is setting you up as a disciple of Jesus Christ for success you cannot have unless you understand what he's saying here. So let's set ourselves up for success. Let's look at the amazing benefits of generosity. And there are three things that I want you to see that he wants for you, and you want them as well. Number one, Jesus, in these words, tells us that he wants for us future treasure. Future treasure. He starts in verse 19 by saying, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, because you know treasures on earth won't last long. The moth uh, eats it up, the, the thieves steal it. It can't last long on planet earth. But instead in verse 21, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Make sure the treasure that you set aside is something that will last, something that will have lasting benefit. I want you to have treasure in the future. <clears throat> you know, last week we talked about the fact, and we actually kind of helped me celebrate the fact that all six of my children have jobs now. Thank you for celebrating that with me. <laughs> Amen. Some of you understand what that's like, and Again, I said to the students last week, it's really great when you graduate from college or wherever it is, uh, move out of high school into the job world and you get a job. Your parents are so excited for you. They love you so much anyway, but they really love you when you have a job because it means that you're moving forward in life. And I've really found it interesting to find my, my kids, my adult kids who now have jobs, talking about their 401k. So here they are, 20 three, four years old, all the way to 37. They're talking about their retirement plan. And they're setting aside major amounts of money for their retirement plan. And, and basically what they're doing is they're storing up for themselves treasure for another time and another place. And they're thinking about what it means to retire. And that's really good because I'm probably not going to be around to help them out when that comes. So I like them talking about the future and a future time and a future place. And they're setting something aside for that future. And this is what Jesus is talking about, except in a heavenly way. He's not talking about your 401k. He's talking about a place and a time and a season in life that's called eternity. He says, treasure up for yourself, treasures in heaven. Man, that's a big, old, that's a big idea. And so what Jesus is talking about to his disciples is the reality of the future afterlife. And he says, I want you to know about it now. I want you to be aware of it now. And I want you to treasure up treasure for that time in your life. So what's in the future? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, when you die, you will immediately be absent from body and present with Christ. Now, Christ is in the heavenly places, and there's a place called heaven. That's just not just up there, but it's a real place. And it's a real existence. It's a real life, and it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And I could keep on saying ever all day long and still not get to scratch the surface of how long eternity is. That's your major life. The major portion of your life is heaven. Yes. It's the future. Jesus is saying with the reality of finances and material things, treasure up for yourself, treasures in heaven. So what's going to be in heaven? Well, I can tell you this. I can tell you anything that you consider materially valuable on earth won't be in heaven. I mean, we're walking on streets of gold in heaven, right? So clearly what we put the soles of our feet on in heaven is not valuable in heaven. It's just 
uh, construction material in heaven, right? But on earth, you don't walk on streets of gold. You don't put your foot down on a piece of gold at all. No, you treasure it with great value. But in heaven, there's a whole different economy, and it's important for us to know what it means to store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. Now, let me tell you what's in heaven that's treasure. Number one, those who have gone before us are with Christ in heaven, many of whom invested on earth for treasure in heaven, and you were impacted by their investments. Someone told you about Christ. Someone called a missionary and sent one that helped you know about Christ. Someone paid for your way to camp. Someone helped you in some way on planet earth by setting aside treasure in heaven, and, and they have done that for you. So there are those that have already gone before us, and then there will go, there will be those in heaven that go because we help them get there by our storing up treasure in heaven. Now let me tell you what I mean. When you think about all the occupants of heaven, you'll realize that they're there for one reason. They're there in one way. And they're there because they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that someone led them to, someone helped them have. I can only imagine how many people over the life of this church, 110, 115 years old or low, older now, who have come to faith in Jesus, who have been baptized as a result of putting their faith in Christ, who have become disciples of Jesus Christ, who have lived that life out. I can only imagine how many lives have been impacted by the ministry of this church here, First Eulis, now Cross City Church. It's really amazing to even imagine how many lives have been touched because someone else set aside treasure, gave it to the Lord Jesus through the church, and their lives were impacted, and those around them were impacted by those gifts. That's storing up treasure for yourself in heaven. A few years ago, MCPC started. That's Mid-Cities Pregnancy Center. And to date, more than 33,000 babies have been rescued who otherwise may have been aborted. And they are now able to have a relationship with Christ. Many of them have come to faith in Christ. They'll be in heaven one day and you'll see them face to face. Even though you didn't know whose life you were rescuing right here and now, your investments, your giving, help that happen so that they now have an opportunity to have a relationship with Christ. I can't wait to see what that looks like. We give millions every year to missions and there are people all over the world who have every tribe and every background as their background, and now they have come to faith in Jesus as a result of missionaries that have been sent from our church, and they now have faith in Christ. We'll see them in heaven, and that's how we store treasure up for heaven. More than 7,000 people have professed Christ since we started Six stones. People have come through. They've been loved on. They've been encouraged. They've heard the gospel of Jesus. 7,000 people have professed Christ in the last 10 years. We'll see those who have professed Christ in heaven someday, treasure in heaven. Kids Beach Club, we have so many kids who have come to faith in Christ, been given Bibles, helped disciple them. We'll see them in heaven. We've fed so many people in Jesus' name. When you give to ministries that promote the gospel, what you do is you set aside treasure for heaven. You treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's amazing to think about that. You know, Pastor, if that's the way it really is, then that's an investment in heaven. It, it certainly is. It absolutely is. And it's not that you can have, it's not so that you can have this beautiful suit in heaven or, or wear some heavenly crown, but so that you can give glory and honor to Christ for the life he allowed you to live on planet earth. And one day we'll all see this. Now, let me make this very plain today because it's so important when we talk about future heaven and future life. Heaven 
is not a reward, but a gift. It's so important for us to know that. I don't go to heaven because it's a reward for how well I've lived life on earth. Not at all. Nobody would ever make it then. Because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. No matter how religious we are, how sincere we are, how desirous we are to positively impact people's lives, we're not going to heaven because we've earned it, because we're incapable of earning it. Heaven is a free gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a result of work. No one will boast. No one will stand before God and say, I got here on my own. It's a gift. But once you receive the gift of eternal life, and once you follow the Lord and believers' baptism again to serve Him, everything you do on planet Earth stores up reward in heaven when you arrive. So the fact that you're going to heaven is a gift from God, but the reward bestowed upon you is something that you gain while you serve God on planet Earth. Every prayer you pray, every gospel conversation you have, every gift you give, every check you write, every dollar you give to someone in need in the name of Jesus. Every time you touch someone else in the name of Jesus Christ, doors up treasure for yourself in heaven. And once you're standing before the Lord Jesus Christ, you want a treasury full of things that you can throw at his feet and say, all glory, all honor to you. It's a time of accountability, but it's also a time of celebration for letting us live life well in the name of Christ and for his glory. So Jesus is talking to the disciples in very black and white terms. It's not about earth. It's about your greater existence in life. It's about heaven. It's about the future treasure in heaven. I sure wish that we saw that with as much solidity and much, uh, much reality as we do our 401k, our retirement plan. My retirement plan is going to get me through probably. But my heavenly plan is going to be bigger than that, thank the Lord. And that's what it ought to be. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, he gives us a test here. And here's what the test is. It's in verse 21. It's kind of a tough test. And in verse 21, he says, I want you to treasure up for yourselves treasure in heaven. But, but here is a question for you and a statement. The statement is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the question is, Implied, so where's your heart? If I look at where I send my treasure, my earthly treasure, if I look at what I do with the money that I'm blessed with, with my paycheck, with everything that God blesses me with, if I look at that carefully, if I evaluate that carefully, it'll show me where my heart is. So Jesus says, one day you'll have treasure in heaven, but you ought to be looking right now and evaluating right now what you do with your earthly treasure because I want you to treasure up for yourself treasure in heaven. Randy Alcorn, who's an incredible author when it comes to the thing that we're talking about today, made the statement, as sure as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. Money leads and the heart follows. That's true. Where's your treasure? Based on your checkbook. Where's your treasure based on where you spend your money? It ought to be something you sit down and look at. At the end of every year, you ought to evaluate your giving, evaluate your spending, and what did you spend money on? Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not, but for you, you ought to know. When I pastored in Tennessee, there was a man named Harold Coker. Harold was an incredible man. He was a man that uh, started a small tire business in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it just kind of grew. 
But as it grew, he began to invest in old automobiles. Now, I've I, I got to lo love a guy that loves old cars and old trucks, man. I mean, I have a lot in common with a guy like that. And he had collected 150 of the finest automobiles ever made. He had a museum in his barn, and then he had another museum in a downtown building he later renovated to be a car museum. And I mean, Harold loved his cars. If you were to ask somebody about Harold, where's his heart? then the obvious answer would be, well, it's in his cars because he puts everything in those cars. But if you knew Harold Coker very well, you also knew that he loved his Savior, his Lord. And Harold Coker was one of the most generous men I've ever met. He gave money, incredible amounts of money to all kinds of things that would impact people for the gospel. Missionaries, those who need to hear about Christ, benevolence. I mean, he was just a giver. So on the outside, it looked like he valued cars, but if you knew where his money really went, you'd know he values Christ. Now, Harold Coker died, and not one of those cars went with him. But all the treasure he set aside for heaven, it met him there when he went to heaven. And all those lives he invested in, those lives have been impacted by his treasure given for future use. And he's getting the glory to give to God in heaven. We all ought to be like that. It's obvious to us that God has blessed us abundantly in our nation and as people in general, we are abundantly blessed, but it's important for us to look at future treasure. There's something else that Jesus talks about here. And it has to do with present balance. It gets into the idea of the eye. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. It refers to a healthy eye that does not see double, but is perfectly focused. Anybody in here ever had a problem with double vision at some point in your life? Would you raise your hand? A lot of us have at some temporary time. I, I hope it was temporary. I remember driving down the street one day, and all of a sudden I had double vision. Double vision's a problem when you're driving a car down the street because you're not really sure if the car coming your way is in your lane or out of your lane. You're not really sure what you're supposed to do about that. The best idea is just pull over, right? Just pull over or close one eye if that'll help. But double vision is not good for anybody at any time, especially when you're driving. I don't do that much, thank the Lord. You ought to thank God I don't do that much. But Jesus says double vision is not good in life at all. You ought to have a singular mind, a singular eye, clear eye. Because the opposite of a clear eye is an evil eye. And evil here in this text is a reference to wicked, selfish perspectives. Someone who has their attention on personal gain instead of being a servant of God. Or in other words, a fence straddler. Someone who has one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and they can't really decide where they're going to put their weight. That's what someone without a clear eye looks like. It's important for us to get our clarity of vision where do I really want to invest for the future? I remember when I was 19 years of age before I met my wife uh, in college. I was about 19. I happened to go on a date with a young lady. And um, as I went on the date with her, uh, we went to a restaurant, a really nice restaurant. And I was trying to have a conversation with her, trying to get to know her a little bit. And a couple came and sat down at a table, a couple of tables away. And uh, the moment they sat down, this date of mine kept looking back over towards that table. I kind of thought, well, what's, what's, what's over there? I mean, I don't know who those people are. Do you know those people? I said, she goes, no, I don't know them. And after we went on a little bit in the dinner, she said, have you noticed how large that diamond is on that girl's ring? 
And I said, well, no, as a matter of fact, I wasn't looking at how large the diamond was on her ring. She goes, man, that's the most beautiful diamond I've ever seen. And she looked at me and she said, I'd like to have a diamond that big someday. <laughs> that's the last date we ever went on. <laughs> and I think the reason that was the last date we ever went on is because I got the keen sense that she was less interested in the person sitting at her table and more interested in whether I could help her get a diamond like that one over there. Now, we don't need to be like that with God. Are we more interested in God himself or what God can give us? You see, a clear eye says, I want to serve you, God, with all my resources. There are certain things that are going to be required for me to spend on planet Earth. I've got to have a place to live. I need something to eat. I've got to have clothes to wear. But I also want to lay aside treasure for heaven as well. And I want to have a clear eye about that. I don't want there to be any mistake. God, you're the owner of everything. All I am is the manager of things. And one day I know there will be an accounting. Ed Coe. What an incredible guy Ed is. He has some incredible things to say sometimes. And as we studied the text for this week, he made this statement. He said, when we serve mammon or material possessions, it will always be about me. It's about taking, hoarding. It's about what's in it for me. But when we serve God, it's always about giving. It's about blessing, about serving, sacrificing, loving. That's an incredible statement. You can always tell whether your eye is clear by your conversation. Is it about you? Or is it about how do you serve God? Healthy giving brings balance to my perspective. It helps me balance out what God has blessed me with, knowing I don't need it all. I can't use it all for me. I must put it forward into heaven. It's why the rich young ruler is such a sad story. Because that young man came to converse with Jesus. How do I inherit eternal life, he says. And Jesus said, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. Not something that Jesus said to everyone, but he said to that young man because he knew that young man's heart was in his possessions. He's a rich, young ruler. The Bible says that his face fell and he walked away. He was double-minded. He couldn't figure out how to serve God and his material possessions. And Jesus says, be clear-eyed about this. Be singularly focused. Serve God with all you have so that you have a present balance in life and it's not about you. And then thirdly, and maybe even more importantly than anything else I've said today, there's a section in this text that talks about daily peace or worry. Do you ever notice from verses 25 all the way to the end of the text, all Jesus talked about was worry and anxiety and in verse 25, he says, for this reason, do not be worried about your life. You can't worry about your life more than anything else and serve God very well. So worry means to be anxious and troubled. It means to be dominated by the thought. If you do a word study on the word worry, it's from marizo, which means to divide or draw in different directions. It's like being the rope in a tug of war. In the English, it's translated to strangle. Don't be strangled. In the Latin, it means to choke or torment. There is a disorder that's called the generalized anxiety disorder I learned about recently. It affects 6.8 million adult Americans and about twice as many women as men. The disorder comes on gradually. It can begin across the life cycle, though the risk is highest between childhood and middle age. It is diagnosed when someone spends at least six months worrying excessively about a number of everyday problems always worried, always concerned about things. But Jesus 
speaking in this text, makes it really clear that he does not want his children preoccupied with the meaningless temporary stuff in life. And since earthly treasures can blind your spiritual vision and keep you from serving God, don't think incessantly about them. And then Jesus goes into nine or ten verses here, amazing length of time to talk about worry. And I want to share with you what he says, five ways that worry defeats you. Did you know that worry and anxiety can so grip your life that you're not even thinking straight anymore? You're, you're, you're doing all kinds of things that you would never otherwise ordinarily do. I had one panic attack in my life that was worth talking about. And it was when I was on an airplane in kind of a third world country. It was a 17-seater airplane. We were about the last to board, and the other seats were way back at the back of the plane. And the body of this plane went from being able to stand up in to being very low and tight in the back where the seat was. Literally, by the time I got to the back of that plane, the 17-seat plane, I was crawling on my hands and knees in the aisles just to get to the, the seat. And when I got to the seat and turned around, I was surrounded by a crowd of people, and the door was way off. And I didn't have a lot of confidence in the airline or the pilots or anything else. And I was like, I'll be the last one off this plane if it goes down. And I had what I can only describe as an anxiety attack. I lost all reason. I began to claw my way up. 6'5", 250 pounds, throwing people aside in every which direction. Clawed my way up all the way to the pilot seats where it was only separated by a curtain. It didn't have a door, it was just a curtain. And there was a pilot and a co-pilot. We were already on the tarmac, and I pulled the curtain back and said, stop the plane, I'm getting off. And these two Bahamian pilots turned to me and their eyes were that big around. They looked at me like, who are you and what do you want in our cockpit? I said, I can't sit in that seat. Stop the plane. He said, we're on the tarmac, sir. And I said, I walk back. I don't care. He said, don't you have a wife on the plane? It doesn't matter. I went off the plane. <laughs> I didn't really feel that way, but I lost all reason. I told you I lost all reason. He finally decided if I could get a seat close to the door, they could continue the flight. So he looked at the first guy on that first row and said, you get to the back. <laughs> Put this big dude in the seat right here. And I overcame the anxiety long enough to make that flight. I've never gotten a plane that size again. Probably won't. But I realized that with all the reasoning that's normally there, it can go away when anxiety, when worry takes over. Some people live like that. They're not sure what's wrong. But they know something is not quite adding up in their reasoning and they're anxious about it, they worry about it. I saw a, a simulated text conversation between someone's anxious thoughts and themselves. But it goes something like this. Something's off, says your mind. How so? Someone would say. Not sure, your mind says, but something's wrong. What? Don't know. Something. Can you give me an idea? Something's just off. What's off? What's off? And all of a sudden, we're worried. People live that way. Jesus, knowing that people are often anxious, says here are things that can defeat you and bring you down. Here they are, number one. When you worry, you lose peace. Jesus says, do not be worried. Anxiety is the opposite of peace. When you worry, your mind is divided, tension increases, and the greatest anxiety for most of us is not daily bread, not small things, but how to pay for what we've already acquired. It's important to make decisions that don't produce Worry in your life. Make decisions that make for peace. 
Choose to spend your money in a way that'll help you, not hurt you in the long run. Otherwise, you lose peace. Secondly, when you worry, you lose purpose. Jesus said in verse 25, it's not life more than food. All the way through this, Jesus talks about eating and drinking and clothing, which are just things. But when our thoughts are always on things, we forget about what life is really all about. It's amazing that we can have a full house and a full closet and a full stomach and still be empty. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Be full in your purpose. Be full in the spiritual things. And you're not so worried about whether your house is full, your closet is full, your stomach is full. Thirdly, when you worry, you lose reason. Are you not worth much more than they, referring to the birds of the, of the air? And who of you can add a single hour to his life? And we begin to worry, does not God not love me? Does he not care about me because he's not helping me with these bills and I'm anxious about it? And we're anxious because we lose perspective of how God sees us, of what he wants for us. Sometimes when I want a quick lunch, I'll run by my favorite Chick-fil-A up there on Glade Crossing area. And I'll wait 30 minutes to get through that line and get my food. And I'll just go park over to the side. And I've noticed something over the years as I've done that, just eating in my car. I've noticed that there are more birds in that area of our city than anywhere else in the known civilized world. They really are. There are about 72 million blackbirds over there. They're just these hideous, big old black bird crow kind of creatures, right? And uh, I notice that when I park and eat, that they come around my car, they're hoping I'll roll down my window and throw out a, you know, a waffle fry or two, but I never waste a waffle fry so they don't get my <laughs> waffle fries or anything else. Jesus said, even the birds of the air are taken care of. Even those hideous crows that have no real purpose in life that I know of. They don't eat nearly enough mosquitoes to satisfy me. They don't do anything I know of that's worthwhile. They're, I don't know why God has them on planet Earth, but he's got a reason. But, but here's, here's the analogy Jesus said, even those birds, that you may not think have much value. Your heavenly Father takes care of them. Why would you even ask the question, are you not as valuable as those birds? Don't you know the heavenly Father cares about you, that maybe the anxiety is being created by something of your own making instead of something the Father has done? He cares about you. We lose reasoning when we dive into this love for possessions. When you worry, you lose perspective. Verse 28, why are you worrying about clothing? Something so insignificant as clothing. But do we ever worry about clothing? I've had three daughters. I know what it means to worry about clothing. But Jesus says, listen, the Father can handle all these things. Don't lose perspective on what you think is important. Finally, when you worry, you lose faith. And here's probably the most indicting thing in this whole text. Oh, ye of little faith, Jesus says, verse 30. Here's a good definition for you. Write it down. If you're writing things down, write this down. Worry is faith in the negative. Trust in the unpleasant. Assurance of disaster and belief in defeat. Worry is faith in the negative. You believe in the negative more than you do the positive. Worry is trusting the unpleasant possibilities instead of the miraculous intervention of God. Worry is being assured of disaster instead of being more assured that your God could rescue you. Worry is belief in defeat instead of belief in the victory that will eventually be brought in your life because of Christ. When you worry... 
When you give in to anxiety, you're living a life of what I call practical atheism. Do I believe Jesus can forgive me of sin and give me a home in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Yes, I do. But I can't trust him with my week to week or day to day. You see, that's when it begins to be convicting to my heart. Why would the one that you could trust for your eternity not be trustworthy for tomorrow? Right? Now, there's an antidote to all this worry. That's in the next verse. The antidote to anti-faith, one prescription for all these things. You know what it is. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's the antidote. That's what removes the poison of worry, anxiety, misplaced priorities, double vision, and everything else. So Jesus wants you to have future treasure. He wants you to have the present balance in your life. He wants you to have daily peace. But for you to have that, you have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not only with how you live life day by day, but with your finances as well. And as you do that, all these things will be added to you. Why? Because he even feeds the birds of the sky. He's going to take care of you. Because he loves you as only a heavenly father can. I want you to bow your head for a moment and ask yourself the question as you do so. Lord, am I seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness in everything? I would say to you today, if you're not coming to Jesus first for your salvation, for eternal life, if you're not coming to Jesus first for making sure your sins are forgiven, making sure that you have a right relationship with the Father, then you must come to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Are you seeking him first? I would also say to you today that if that decision hasn't been made, make it now, make it today. Could be that you've made that decision in the past, but you've never followed him with the next step, which is baptism. Maybe today. For you to think about following him in believer's baptism is the most important decision you can make. It's part of his discipleship, part of what it means to follow him. And next week we'll be baptizing a lot of people. Maybe today you need to come to faith in Christ or make the decision to be baptized. But then ask the question about everything else in your life. Am I seeking him first with my finances? Am I seeking him first with all the other things that God has called me to? And if I'm not, I'll make decisions today that'll help me seek him first. Father, in Jesus' name, as we pray, we ask you to help us seek you first. Lord, we wanna make sure that we're following you with our whole hearts, with everything about us. So today, Lord, I pray that you'll move in our hearts. Help us to make the decisions we need to make. And today, as we sing, to respond not only in worship, but with obedience. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Counselors, come forward, and as we worship, you respond to the Lord today.